the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We're supposedly in the quiet time of the height of summer, but there's still a lot happening, and it's a good time to take stock of how things are working in the city. Mayor John Tory joined Libby's Nimer in studio and began by touching on Davin Hill Senior Living, residence on Young Street that's been sold to a real estate lawyer, which means that about 150 elderly people have to find a new place to live. I know how disruptive it is for anybody, but especially for an older person to be uprooted from a place where they might have expected to spend, frankly, the rest of their days. Uh, and But, but you know, the, the, the landlord in this case and the operator of the uh, residents for seniors are all following all the rules. And so the first thing that Mike Layton and I are going to do is uh, ha- have our officials write us a report on, on, on the shortcomings of the rules so that we can make sure those people are adequately protected. But the second thing we're doing in the short term is working with them. And, and the, the, the people, again, the operators of this Davin Hill residence have hired a relocation consultant. They have managed to relocate quite a few of the residents already. And I have assurances because I've talked to some of the principals when we tracked down who they were yesterday that um, if there's more time needed to make sure people get settled in a way that I described as a soft landing so that they can comfortably be resettled in some uh, new home, then that will be the case. But I think in this case, what you had here is both a change in the ownership of the land, but equally important, a lack of financial viability of this building. The business itself of running this building was run by a nonprofit was in jeopardy. So you can't, that that's not a good thing either. They could have come along one day and just sort of declared bankruptcy. And instead they sort of are closing the place out in an orderly fashion. But I realize it's incredibly disruptive, and that's what we're trying to sort of help deal with. Mike Layton mentioned that when you get a redevelopment application for that property, that might be the time when the city can do something about it. Am I right? Well, certainly when we get a redevelopment application for any piece of property, we have a degree of leverage as part of our approval process to say, well, you know, yes, we'll let you do some redevelopment, but you have to do this for us. So often we'll say we want a child care center or we want this or we want that. And that's part of the bargain that we strike with the developers. And so the answer to your question is yes, if there's a redevelopment application. And when I say if uh, there isn't one, we don't know of one, there's not somebody that's phoned and said there's going to be one. But if there is one, that's when we get some ability to negotiate with whoever wants to do something on that land to say, well, we want you to help look after seniors or, you know, whatever. But that's something that's strictly hypothetical at this stage. And will that be jeopardized? I mean, we know that the OMB, the Ontario Municipal Board, is coming back. For a while, it looked like Toronto would have a say about development in Toronto. Is it is that likely to be a problem in well, that Well, the process? answer to your question is yes, in a certain way, in that what the OMB was, and I think always there's a need for an appeal body to exist to sort of look after what might be considered incorrect or arbitrary decisions of even the city government of elected people. But it does mean that the OMB could overrule something we could negotiate from a developer and say, no, we don't agree with that, and they have the last word, which I always thought wasn't the right way to go about this. I thought the last word should always rest with elected people, because then you're accountable, and if people don't like something you've done, they'll vote you out. Uh, so it does compromise that a little bit, but it doesn't stop us entirely from sitting with the land developer and saying, we need you to help us address the needs of seniors in that area or some such thing. And so I'm sure when that day comes, if it comes, that that's uh, the kind of thing we'll do. But in the meantime, what Councillor Layton and I are going to work together on is making sure that we look at the provincial rules that relate to long-term care and relate to the tenancy of seniors in places like this and make sure that there are as few um, kind of cracks that Loop people... 
people can fall through. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think they were deliberately created loopholes, but there may be things people didn't think about, like an instance like this, where we have to look at it and say, look, we want to make sure seniors in this kind of living, aging in place uh, kind of arrangement are not unfairly or disrupted in a way that is inconsistent with what we think should be the case. One of the things that's interesting to me, we hear a lot about uh, the housing crisis for younger people, for millennials, uh, and I think less about the the issue, the same issue for seniors. No, right. how, how bad is, is well, that? It, it, look, the affordability problem in the city of Toronto is an affordability problem for everybody. And, it, and in a way, young people and older people are, are the same because young people have a lower income coming into the workforce when they start out in their first job. Older people are living on some sort of a fixed income, which is usually lower, you know, because they're either on a pen- Canadian pension or on a work pension, which is not meant to, you know, the amounts are not such you can be living in the lap of luxury, to say the least, especially in a very expensive city like this. So the answer to your question is the seniors part of this is just as acute a problem and will grow because there are more and more and more people becoming seniors. So it is something that when we talk about affordable housing, a lot of the issue that we are dealing with is going to be to have suitable housing with, in some cases, some extra supports that can allow people to stay in yeah. those affordable homes longer. So they have a bit of extra support, even just somebody looking in on them from time to time. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Um, Home care. It's, it's, it's fairly independent living, but there's somebody who notices if you don't kind of appear in the lobby on a given day and they at least go up and knock on the door and say, are you okay? And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as that. And so this is we're very focused on that. Toronto Mayor John Tory. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Call it the Logan Boulay effect. He's the young victim of the Humboldt Broncos bus crash who willed his organs to be donated. Here in Ontario, that helped to translate into an increase in organ donations and transplants. In just the first three months of the year, the Trillium Gift of Life Network says a record-setting 388 lives were saved in the province. Ronnie Gavzi is CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network. She stopped by to discuss the positive trend. What we have seen in the last three months, which is the first quarter of this fiscal year, is a 27% increase in the number of organ donors and a 31% increase in the number of transplants. That's an increase above the same period last fiscal year. Wow. So that's a lot. It's substantial. Substantial. Yes. Now, I understand that part of this, and I find this very interesting and uh, it's probably very interesting for our older demographic, that a lot of the people who are, are want to donate their organs are people who have opted for medical assistance in dying. That's correct. So individuals who have been approved for medical assistance in dying are entitled as is anyone else in Ontario, to be educated on the option of organ donation. And so they are, and they make a choice. And we have found that in the first quarter of this fiscal, six uh, there were six organ donors resulted, resulting from medical assistance in dying. And that compares to 12 from the whole year previously. So obviously the number is increasing. I'm also wondering, I mean, people who opt for medical assistance in dying are people who uh, are terminally ill. So are their organs good? I mean, you know, I I would think, uh, you know, according to the stats, a lot of people are people who have cancer. Their organs are still viable? So people who are currently being treated for cancer 
at the time of their medical assistance in dying are not uh, uh, organ donors. Th that's not an option if you're currently being treated. But people uh, who are dying from other causes unrelated to cancer, th many of their organs are, are absolutely suitable for donation. So this suitability is tested. Once an individual makes a decision, then their suitability is tested. And let me ask you this. If you've been treated for cancer in the past, are your organs viable? Yes. yes. Even after like if, chemo, radiation, the whole... If you've been free from treatment and uh, cancer for five years, yes. That and is the case. What are some of the other conditions that would make you uh, not eligible to be an organ donor? I would say in general, uh, it's important to know that to be an organ donor, you have to pass away on a respirator. So if a person uh, dies in hospital and is not being uh, on a respirator, the organs are not being perfused, then they're not eligible. They're not eligible. And that's only about 2% of the deaths in a hospital are people who die on a respirator. So, so all the others are precluded okay. uh, from donation. So that very much limits the number of people who are, are even potential organ donors. And then once you've, uh, someone has passed on a, on a respirator and uh, the family history has been taken and the uh, family has consented, there are many more medical tests. And they, they may find other conditions that would, for example, infections that could potentially be passed on to the recipient, which would preclude uh, organ donation. But I will tell you that in this era, one of the reasons why we're seeing an increase in the number of donors is what we've called increased risk donors are actually becoming donors because we have medications that will, in fact, preclude the recipient from being infected. There's so much tremendous increase in medical acumen and technology today. And I, I think there's also an increase in uh, uh, the procedures for making uh, the organs viable. It's called yeah. ex vivo regeneration. Mm -hmm. That's exa exactly right, Libby, especially for lungs, uh, where lungs are not pristine and not uh, uh, in perfect condition for donation. They are regenerated outside the body. And research is now being done such that we can move forward on that very soon with liver and with kidney. Ronnie Gavsey, CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. Some alarming new numbers reinforce what we already know about how dangerous falls are for seniors. People in that age group made up over half of injury-related hospitalizations in Canada, according to the Canadian Institute for Health Information. In four out of five times, this type of hospitalization was due to falls. The second leading cause? Vehicle collisions. Joining Libby to discuss, Jeff Fernie of the University Health Network and Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. Most of the falls were the result of slips, trips, and stumbles. And there are two parts of falls that's worth thinking about. One is to avoid the 
the cause, the slip or the trip or the stumble. We call it the perturbation. And the second is to recover from it before you get injured, before you hit the ground. We should focus on both. And we should begin perhaps talking about avoiding slips um, because that's where I can be the most helpful, although we can, we'll get on to trips as well. And slips, What's the difference um, between a slip and a trip? Uh, a slip is when your foot gets away from you and you fall over typically backwards. Okay. Um, a trip is when you encounter um, uh, a slight rise in the, in the ground or a, a crack or something, and your foot that's swinging forward is suddenly stopped and you fall forward typically. What did you want to tell us about avoiding? The key to avoiding slips and trips really is the interface between your foot and the floor. It's your footwear or what you're walking on. Um, obviously, you need good friction between the, the shoe and the floor if you're not going to slip. Now, the most obvious um, occasion for that is, and you've talked to me before about it, is winter and slipping on snow and ice. But it's not the only time. Slipping in your socks or slipping going downstairs or whatever is something that you should avoid. So in the winter, it's easy. We've got, in Toronto, we, we run ratemytreads.com and you choose good winter footwear. And although that's a struggle because the winter footwear still isn't the greatest, it's getting better each year. In terms of being indoors, there is evidence that you should be careful to wear non-slippery, well-fitting things indoors. Um, it will help. Tripping is a different thing. Um, I had my hip replaced a few years ago, so I know quite intimately about this. Um, when you, as you get older, you, the kind of the ability to lift your foot high off the ground decreases, and also if you get tired, the walk, human walking is kind of magic. Um, one foot goes on the ground, and that's called the stance phase, and the other foot swings forward from behind to out front of you. And it's very clever. It swings forward quite quickly, and it's really close to the ground. I mean, it's within a few millimeters as it moves forward. And when you think about that, that's really amazing that the body can do that. But as we get older, or if we get tired, that gap between the foot swinging forward and the ground can get smaller. And indeed, um, we can even begin to shuffle. Now, if it gets smaller, you only need a small discontinuity in the surface. And of course, we have lots of those, even though the city really makes an effort to deal with them, um, with freezing, frost heave and stuff. There's always little cracks and, uh, on pavements. And, uh, or big ones. Yeah, but the big ones are not such a big problem, actually, Libby, because you can see the big ones. Um, interestingly, it's the small ones that catch people. Um, and so the foot just hits that and it stops, but your body's still moving forward. And um, because you're still moving forward, you're putting, starting to put weight onto that one that's foot that's stopped, and then you just go over forwards and, and, and on, your, on your hip, which can be nasty. And you probably will have a hip fracture. You quite often will have a wrist fracture because you stick your arm out to protect yourself. Preventing slips is with footwear. Preventing trips 
is being fitter, being stronger. I do two sessions of of gym a week to build the strength to lift my foot, to make sure I'm aware of that and I don't get tired and drag it on that um, swing through. Jeff Fernie of the University Health Network and Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. You heard it here first. Mayor John Tory revealed on Fight Back that the city's cracking down on excessive noise, starting with those inconsiderate ones who soup up their vehicles or blast music in their vehicles so loud that it shakes the street. The police gave out 44 tickets this week, and the mayor will be talking more about this next week. However, where it comes to noise complaints from the streets, it can take police days to respond. And there are a lot of other issues beyond vehicles and noisy neighbors who like to party, whether from construction or restaurants that amp up the volume to give the impression of a scene. Noise pollution is a big health hazard. And with a new noise bylaw that'll take effect in October, Libby spoke with Toronto City Councillor Shelley Carroll, Dr. Arlene Bronzaft, a psychologist who was instrumental in bringing a new noise bylaw to New York City, and Dr. Matthias Basner, Associate Professor of Sleep and Chronobiology and Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. One of the biggest culprits is construction noise, and that, that will come as no surprise. Most residents have some form of construction near them. And generally speaking, they're the kinds of noises that if you heard that noise this morning, long before they were supposed to start work, you're probably going to hear it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that. They're almost always things where the reason people complain is because it's chronic. And so it's quite reasonable to be complaining. And that's that's where the bylaw cracks down. Basically, what we're looking at is going in there, levying heavier fines, and we've increased those. And we're also looking at, uh, at getting in there and really staying on the case until they really change their work plans. And now let's bring in Dr. Arlene Bronzaft. She's a psychologist who was instrumental in bringing in a new noise bylaw for New York City. And Dr. Matthias Bassner who is Associate Professor of Sleep and Chronobiology in Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. Arlene, you helped bring in a new noise bylaw in New York. Uh, and how is it working out? Has it really improved things? My research and writing speak to the deleterious effects of noise on health. And that's overwhelming. And the people that are complaining about noise are being stressed by And if the stress doesn't create some physiological disorder, it has at least diminished their quality of life. And you're not living a healthy lifestyle if you have to cope with noise. So in New York City, I was more involved than psychologists generally are in trying to effectuate change. And one of these was updating the noise code, which we did 12 years ago. The code is enforced by a designated group of people. The Department of Environmental Protection oversees the enforcement of a code, and they have agents that are only involved with enforcement of of the noise code. So when I talk about the fact that you must enforce a law or else the law is not worth the paper it's written on, the agency that's going to oversee it, has to have designated people that are going to deal with it. 
Dr. Bassner, can you just give us an idea? I know that uh, excessive noise can affect heart health. Uh, what else? Sleep disturbance, that is something that I have uh, been doing a lot of research on, is one of the major um, health effects of noise because sleep is so important. Uh, it recuperates us and prepares us for the next wake period. And, and noise is a very potent disruptor of sleep uh, because the auditory system is really uh, has a watchman function. It's, it's, it's really monitoring our environment constantly, even while we're sleeping, and is basically waking us up if there's anything that has a potential danger. There's a, a large body of research, epidemiologic research, showing that um, relevant noise exposure for prolonged periods of time can increase the risk for cardiovascular disease, that is, you know, increased blood pressure, increased rate of heart attacks, potentially stroke. But there's also more and more studies looking at other health outcomes like diabetes, obesity, or even cancer uh, that noise may be associated with. And that may, makes good sense in the sense that through the mechanism of sleep disturbance, but also, you know, just the, the general stress response that triggers inflammatory mechanisms, et cetera. And although, you know, the risk increases are um, oftentimes not dramatic, like, for example, the risk increase of uh, cancer through smoking, it still is a major public health problem in the sense that so many people are exposed to relevant noise levels. And this is why, you know, some people call it uh, the next big public health crisis. Uh, I'm always thinking, you know, why is not more being done uh, to uh, lower noise uh, when we know so much about the, uh, the negative health consequences of noise? And I, I came to the conclusion the problem is that, you know, uh, everything that generates noise also ge can generate revenue or actually some people like that, like people going to a rock concert or these people driving around with their motorbikes and their loud exhaust system. So for every opponent, you will always also always find somebody supporting the noise. So the, the noise legislation enforcement is always a balancing act, and that makes it so hard. Toronto Councillor Shelley Carroll, Dr. Arlene Bronzaft, psychologist who was instrumental in bringing a new noise bylaw to New York City, and Dr. Matthias Basner, Associate Professor of Sleep and Chronobiology and Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Bob Komsik, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. June in Mississauga talked about a sibling she lost because of an injury caused by a fall. My brother, who was 74, um, he had many things in his life, like a kidney transplant and a heart bypass. Wow. But the thing that killed him, he was coming out his front door, and he fell on his front steps of his house. Um, went by ambulance to the hospital. I had broken his leg. They had repaired it. Uh, his wife was told to, to go home that um, he was just recovering. She phoned later, and they said, bring somebody with you. She went back to the hospital, and he had died of a blood clot that developed after the operation. Falls are... The number one problem of most of my friends, I am now 79, and I had a mat in my kitchen, and about three times I caught the corner of it, and I said, you know what, June? That mat has got to go. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lena in Etobicoke, who says there's no reason not to be an organ donor. I am an organ donor. I've never thought to not be. But being from Nova Scotia, I believe they recently changed the law in Nova Scotia to say that it's basically you're uh, considered to be like an okay go on uh, donating your organs unless you specifically go and say, no, I don't want to. Maybe I'm just naive or something like that, but I just don't really see why anybody would say, no, don't use them. I'm dead. Bury me with them. Like, I don't, I don't see why you need them anymore. If they're good to save someone's life, let that be, like, let it happen. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Bob Comsick. Jane Brown returns next weekend to round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham 